Hi, it's Dan here for Dusty Disc Radio, and this is the podcast Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Today, I'm very honored to have as my special guest, Juno Award-winning singer, songwriter, percussionist, Julie Massey. We'll get some insights about recording and working on major albums and touring and much more. So stick around for a look inside the Canadian music scene from someone who took the ride of fame in the 1980s. Uh, best known for her time with the Parachute Club, Julie has lots to share about that time and what she's done since then as well. So thanks for joining me today, Julie. How are you? I am great, Dan. Thanks for having me. Good. Well, thanks for coming on. You know, I, uh, I really was, I think we were just saying in the preamble how interesting it's been for me to talk to the retro Canadian music makers and people that sort of had their ride in the music business uh, way back when. And uh, it's been interesting to get to know the, I'm always curious about the path that people take, you know, so you, you were, you were a small town prairie girl, I guess, from what it was at Dominion City, Manitoba. You've done your research. And, well, I have. And, <laughs> but then, you know, the family influence too, like you play a lot of music, right? Everybody's singing and playing and well, stuff. That was your experience too. That's exactly how I grew up. My, uh, I grew up in Southern Manitoba, uh, Dominion City. I, I grew up on a farm. And, um, you know, my family on my mom's side, especially was really musical. We would, we would always get together for, you know, our big family gatherings and our aunts and uncles, everybody played an instrument. My uncles would bring their guitars. My mom played piano. So did my aunt. And, you know, of course we were gather around the piano in the basement and lots of singing of the old time songs. And then some of the newer ones that they would, you know, uh, do. And then, you know, I was, as a young girl, I would be right there, like just immersed in that, those harmonies and all that music. And it just was such an influence on me. I really, I can remember that so well, just being in that group of my aunt and uncle singing. So, you know, that was really a great influence. So. Well, and in some ways that's the best training you could get really, because you just make it happen. You, you just assume you can do it. You sing along, you learn the parts, you play them and sing them. Exactly. Like, and yeah. I'm not sure much of that happens nowadays, you know, do you, do you think that there's a, the same amount of that now? Well, I don't know. I don't, you know, I honestly don't hear much of that. It might happen, um, you know, but you just don't hear about it. Like families yeah. are so busy. Uh, I mean, we had a busy family. We, we had a farm and, uh, you know, both of my parents were really busy, but they always took the time with their brothers and sisters and, and, you know, the rest of the family get togethers. That was a, that was a sort of their socializing. And, you know, now it's so different today. I don't, I don't really think they do that as much today. And what a, that's such a shame because it really was a wonderful bonding time. You know, it's kind of like the Italians getting around the table and eating. That's their bonding <laughs> yes. time, you know? <laughs> yes. No, it's a good point because, uh, you know, that was a lot of the, the warmth and the camaraderie and the family getting together. And that was the social part of it too. Nowadays, you know, the kids are on the iPads and people exactly. are distracted by too many other things. And right? the so. parents are both off working jobs to try and maintain the family and the home. And, yeah. you know, so yeah, it's a really different world today. That's for sure. Yeah. So then you picked drums. So I was curious about that. I mean, not, I guess it's not sexist, but you know, typically <laughs> a guy would play drums, you know, like the, the young sort of aggressive guys, they want to bang, bang, bang. They love that. But then you like the percussion part of it, right? Yeah. Well, it's kind of funny, you know, uh, my parents are really supportive. And at, when I was around 11, my sister was taking piano lessons. My brother was really interested in the guitar and I was always downstairs with wooden spoons banging on my 
mom and dad's the cream pails and the you know the milk cans and stuff you know trying to catch Ringo Starr's beats I was trying to make those beats he he just was such a big influence you know the Beatles were really big when I was 11 and um you know uh one Christmas at when I was that age my dad said okay you guys what do you want do you want a skidoo or do you want in instruments well of course what we're going to choose is the instruments you know mm. so he bought us he bought my brother a guitar and an amp and my sister electric piano and bought me a set of drums and we just you know every living minute we were down there playing i don't know how my parents put up with it but <laughs> you know that's what we did and i i love the drums and you know honestly at 11 years old Karen Carpenter wasn't really around at that time. She she came on the scene a little bit later, but I was so thrilled to see that there was another female drummer. And oh my gosh, I just, I watched or listened to whenever she was on in the radio and I just really loved her. But yeah, I don't know what made me want to do the drums, but it was really interesting to me. So yeah, that was 11 yeah. years old when I started. Well, good for you. And then, so you had a, a- a family band, I guess, mm-hmm. you, your parents, but then eventually you, you played with your, now I see you, that your brother, you lost your brother in yeah. the late sixties. Is that right? Yeah. 1968, um, tragic okay. uh, accident on the farm. And so okay. we lost my brother. And so, you know, at, before that we had been playing at people's house parties and, you know, things like that. And, uh, after we lost, uh, my brother, we kind of stopped playing for a couple of years, but uh, okay. when I was around 15, we had uh, this these couple of guys that were living in a town close to uh, us. They decided they wanted to put a band together, and they invited my sister and I to play with them. So we mm-hmm. got into that little group, and and that was called Man Made, M-A-N-M-A-I-D. Yes, I did too. That's a great, that's clever. I like it. I know, so kind of silly. Yeah, so we played all of the, you know, high school dances and, you know, lots of the Battle of the Bands and just things like that, right? So it was was really fun. And my sister and I were always in the church choir, of course, you know, we were learning our harmonies and things. So, yeah, uh, yeah, we we were always, you know, musically active in every way, right? So... No, good. Mm-hmm. And again, that's super good training, right? You just get out there and play. You're singing in the choir. You're playing with the family band. I mean, yeah. that that sort of, you know, acclimates you to to just playing. So oh, you can just for sure. Play, yeah, right? for sure. And then, just uh, the love of it, and, you know. And then you moved to the big city. You moved to Winnipeg at some point, right? Was that to pursue your dream or was that for work? Or no, I... Winnipeg for... Yeah, I, um, you know, after high school, I decided I was going to be... Uh, hairdresser and uh you know had to make some kind of living didn't really think that music was was going to make me a a living but you know hairdressing was also a very creative field and I was very creative and so that's what I chose and I I went and I did that for a few years but you know I, I always had this yearning to I just wanted to be a singer and I wanted to be in music and so you know, while I was, I was like really a super shy kid, believe it or not. I mean, I put myself in front of anybody just so I could sing, but I was really quite shy. It was kind of interesting how I, how I could do that, but I just forced myself. I wanted it so bad that I just do that, you know? So I put myself in front of anybody who would let me sit in with them. And so, yeah, I was doing that, but I was a hairdresser for a while. 
Okay. Well, I was curious about that because, you know, you often think about lots of people playing music when they're, when they're younger, especially singing with the family and stuff. But then there's that sort of defining moment where you go, you know, I could actually do something more serious here. So I was wondering about moving to Winnipeg, but then you got involved in the music scene there, right? You ended up singing jingles and, oh, and doing yeah. gigs and studio work. And yes, stuff. I sure did. Um, you know, and I can't even quite remember how I met the Paley brothers that owned, um, they owned Century 21 Studios in North mm-hmm. the North End of Winnipeg. And I really honestly can't quite remember how I met them, but they just gave me so much work. I started doing oh, jingles and voiceovers and, you know, just like I was in there probably four times a week doing, oh, doing stuff. Nice. So that's kind of where I cut my teeth in the studio, you know. I had never been in a studio before, but uh, they offered me this and I was keen and, you know, so I, that's where I cut my teeth and uh, really learned uh, the skill of, of, you know, of being in the studio and, and honing that craft. Like there, it really is a, a, I don't know how to say it, but I got really good at it. <laughs> yeah. Well, good so, for you. I mean, yeah. the, you're young, you're ambitious, you've got some skill and you say yes and you go and do it. Right. Yeah. And things just yeah. I wasn't, there out. was, there was no fear. I would just do it, you know? So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And then you ended up, you got to meet Burton, of course, that, um, and Tim Thornia is what I read here. Well, yeah. So, uh, before that I was working, I started singing with Billy Andrusco in this, uh, band called Canadian Connection. And, uh, hmm. And, you know, lots of the different musicians would come out and hear us play. And, uh, you know, through that, I um, I met some folks that had been recording and working at Rhodes Recording Studio. And that's where I met Tim Thorny and Graham Shaw and Gord Osland and, uh, you know, Diane Hetherington and... Uh, a great player you might know him, Michael Rowe was, was there. And of course, Burton Cummings was there at the same time. And so was doing lots, again, a lot of jingles, a lot of demos, a lot of voiceover work. Uh, yeah. yeah. So that was really fun. I really enjoyed that. Well, very cool. Yeah. I mean, you kind of have to immerse yourself in the community and get to know everybody and then things come along, right? I've heard that story many times. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good for you. So, yeah. So then you did the move again, you got married and you made the, the move to the big city and then you went to Toronto, I guess that would have been 1980 around 1980. Then? Well, I was in a disco band for a little bit before that and uh, just said, okay, you know, this is crazy. I, I've had enough. And uh, my friend Gary Farina and Tim Thorny had moved to Toronto by 1980 and um, Gary Farina phoned me up one day and he goes, you know, and I've been working in the studio with him as well. And he phoned me up and he said, you know, you should get your butt here because I could give you so much work in the studio. He was out in Oakville, uh, south of Toronto in a, in a recording studio, Soundpath recording yeah. studio in Oakville. And um, so, you know what? I had packed my bags and I went, I'm out of here. And I decided, you know, I got to take a risk. I was a kind of at that time in Winnipeg. Uh, quite well known and you know I've been working with Ron Paley uh, in his big band and you know I I was quite doing quite well in Winnipeg but I I just felt like I I was at the top of my game but I needed a challenge I needed to to really uh, you know dig deeper and uh, yeah. and and uh, you know make myself uh, you know I needed challenges 
right? I want her to be more than just a disco singer. And so anyway, I thought, well, Toronto will be a really good challenge and I'll see what I can do there. So of course I went off and started doing jingles again and working demos and people's, you know, (laughs) well, it was a way to make a living, right? I had to, I had to find uh, work and make a living. And so, and I was good at it and really fast at it. So that's what I did. And, And through that studio, I just met so many great people. Yeah. Well, cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That creates a good connection. Plus it was a good time in the music business. I've often said that in my podcast, you know, the seventies and into the eighties and stuff. It was a pretty exciting time. There was lots going on. Well, there... Lots of musicians, lots of recording. Great time. Yeah. Yeah. Toronto was just going through, uh, you know, 1982 it was just 1980s, the early eighties. Toronto was going through lots of changes, but there was some really great music coming out of Toronto at that time, you know, really sure. fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, interesting. And then I'm always curious about, you know, how how the bands evolve. Because one thing I've noticed about bands back then, there was lots of people switching around, you know, people playing in different bands and recording. And of course, you're in the studio and some bands are half live and half studio bands. And mm-hmm. there's just a lot of shuffling the deck, you know, a lot of chair shuffling the chairs around. Oh, yeah. And so I was wondering, what about the formula? You know, like the, when you joined the Parachute Club, when that came about, was that like a plan or did that kind of fall together? Oh, that was just uh, really by chance. Um, okay. I had been working with, uh, I had met, uh, Ken Whiteley. I don't know if you know him. He's a folk blues artist out of Toronto. And I'd been working with his group called Paradise Review Band. And, um, Mm. and Steve Webster was the bass player in that band. And, um, so we did lots of folk festivals with Colin Linden. And, you know, we, we, we did a lot of things together with Paradise. Paradise Review Band. And in 1980, around 1982, Steve started working with Billy Bryans and Lorraine Segato. And uh, he started rehearsing with them and they were doing a couple of shows. And um, they had, uh, Billy had been asked to do, um, it was a show for what's now called the Toronto Film Festival. I don't know what it was called back then, but he was asked Mm. to put a band together. And uh, so of course, Steve was in the band, Laurie Conger was playing with Billy and Lorraine at that time too. And Steve mm-hmm. mentioned to them, Hey, you know, I've been working with this gal. She plays great percussion. I've been working with her with uh, the Paradise Review Band. And, you know, I think she'd be a great addition. So they invited me on this gig and I brought my timbales and all my percussion and, cool. and you yeah. know, had a bit of a rehearsal beforehand and just kind of winged it, you know, mm. and I, I just clicked with the band and, um, you know, that's how that came about. It was that, that, you know, what a, what a circumstance, right? It just (laughs) fell into it. That's the thing, you know, some people plan it out and other people, it's just a bit of a fluke, but it, I guess it's, it's like a very fine recipe. You're trying to find the right ingredients to make something that's magical. That's going to be, you know, the sum is, you know, the the whole is greater than the sum of the parts kind of thing. So you got to find the right people and put it all together. And I'm always curious. And I guess sometimes it's just a a bit of a fluke, right? Yeah. And you just never know, you know, you don't know if you're just stepping into a new group, like, are you going to all get along? Are you, as you're, you know, uh, are you going to manage it? Are are you, is your talent going to match theirs or, you know, all of that. Right. So, Yeah. yeah. 
So then the other thing that struck me was I was wondering what, what was the genre? Because there was so much stuff going on around then, it, all the different genres and the different wave, like there was new wave and there was dance. And it, like, what were you trying oh, to be? Yeah. Like you were almost like Miami Sound Machine. Meets, <laughs> uh, I don't know what. Well, you know. we were, I think what, you know, what we were basically called was, you know, I mean, there was punk, there was rock, there was rap, there was, we were yeah. coming out of the disco era, but you know, we were kind of, uh, we were doing what, what they wanted to label us as, as world beat music, you know, it was like okay. uplifting, danceable, soca style music with a positive message. So yeah. that's basically what our genre was, you know, and, okay. yeah. uh, you know, we had, it was an interesting dynamic because there was, you know, seven people in the group, there was four of us women and three men. And, uh, you know, we were, really a great collective of individuals and uh and each i feel like each one of us was very essential to our sound you know back then because yeah. billy had his really billy brian's you know had his real signature drum beats and dave gray with his uh you know his infectious rhythms that he would do and laurie conger she had this new keyboard with all these really cool sounds and you know and then we had margo davidson on the congas and sax and there wasn't a lot of women playing saxophone back then so she was really yeah. unique and then Lorraine with her very unique voice and guitar riffs and her controversial lyrics and there was me you know in the mix too yeah. with my voice and my percussion so you know it was it was really a, a unique blend of musicians and of course you know we were all really young and eager and we were you know yeah. trying to make a make a statement on the Toronto scene right so well, yeah. it was a it was a great formula. I mean, that that's what I'm saying about the recipe, right? You just put this. It, it was kind of almost like herding cats in a sense. You've got a bunch of sort of different people, and you put them all together, and then you come up with this formula, yeah. and it just seems to work. And then you got how did you get a record deal? Was somebody linked into the record companies? Well, yeah, that's kind of an interesting story too, because uh, that first gig that we did, uh, where uh, the Toronto, where you know was the Toronto Film, Fe Film Festival gig, um, there was a fellow there who, his name was Jerry Young, and he owned Current Records. And uh, he was at that gig and he saw us. And, um, you know, he approached Billy and Lorraine and then they had a meeting after that. And he signed us to Current Records as a management, oh. as, a, you know, basically as our manager and yeah. um, put us in the studio, put us in Grant yeah. Avenue studio, right? So... Uh, and after that, we, we signed with RCA, but he was the initial guy. Current Records was the okay. initial uh, guy that, that uh, signed, signed the band. And from there, we went to, like I said, Grant Avenue Studios. In, uh, we went to uh, Hamilton and recorded yeah. with the most amazing Daniel Lanois, who was just starting his career out yeah. then. Mm -hmm. Well, you must have been just shaking your head at the whole time, just going, wow, this is actually working out. This I'm a little farm girl and look what's going yeah. on, right? It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, that's, that's a super cool story because it all kind of fell together. But then you you did your homework and the formula was right and the recipe worked and, and whatnot. So then I guess so then you got a record deal and you go down to Hamilton and you record with Daniel Lanois. But you, mm -hmm. you needed that song. So you, you ended up getting Rise Up, right? That was, I mean, that well, was an anthem. That's yeah. An anthem, yes. Oh, my gosh. No kidding. And uh, that song, it's interesting because it, it, it wasn't at all what it, when we went in, 
uh, Lynn Fernie and Lorraine and uh, Billy, they wrote uh, the lyrics. Um, well, Lynn Fernie wrote most of the lyrics there and uh, she was a young uh, activist. And so anyway, uh, we went in with a whole other sound to that song. It was not hmm. like that when we first went in to record okay. it. Uh, so we laid down some tracks and um, we went home. We, we, you know, we, we would cut about two or three songs a day and do some overdubs and whatnot and vocals on it. And so we, we went home uh, and we came back the following day or whenever we got back in the studio and uh Daniel Lanois says, hey, you know what, you guys, I really want you to listen to this. I've kind of revamped this song. And so he's the one that came up with that initial rhythm like that. Right. Okay. And yeah. uh, and then when we heard it, we went, OK, this is perfect. <laughs> and then we just embellished it and went along and recut the vocals and put all of the, you know, Tim Bali stuff and all of the percussion stuff on it and you know all of that so it just evolved into that and it was really daniel yeah. daniel who uh his genius that came up with that actual beat you know so. interesting mm -hmm. yeah because i mean that's that's the thing like i talked to john Capek about songwriting and stuff but that's one thing he said like you got to try to write anthems and they're very very hard to write and they're very hard to find and then they got to be presented they got to be recorded in the right way and presented in the right way absolutely and that that song is so it's it's one of those anthems it's still so relevant today it's absolutely. like yeah. you know uh, the lyrics, the beat, the entire message. I mean, it's still used yeah. to motivate and inspire and, and like, you know, provoke Absolutely. change and acceptance. You know, it's just one yeah. of those songs that uh, I just think it's eternal, right? So. Absolutely. It's timeless, That which is yeah. the other part of it that everybody wants, right? Yeah, no <laughs> kidding. listen to it 40 years later and you still love it. Absolutely. So I was... I was curious about the, the videos, you know, like there's a Canadian version and an American version. Right. Like, right. which is a bit odd. Why, why was that? Because you were on Much Music and you got some MTV play as well. Right? Oh, yes, absolutely. We uh, we did that first video to support the, the release of the single. And uh, that was just done on a flatbed in the streets of Toronto. Uh, yes. And to be truthful, I don't remember who actually filmed that. Uh, back then, um, but it was really a fun video, and it just you know we we had a few of our friends come out and help us in the video. Uh, but later on in years, we were trying to break into the states, right? So we were mm -hmm. trying to get into the U.S. and get some play there. And so uh, the record company decided that uh, we should cut a new video and just make it a little bit more current and just something you know maybe not as yep. uh, raw as the first one was. So Deborah Samuels was the one who actually filmed the second video. She was a, an amazing uh, uh, photographer and videographer at that time in Toronto. She took most of all of our promo shots and everything like that. She okay. was fantastic. Yeah. So she's the one that uh, put that together. So yeah, we were just yeah. trying to break into the States. So we had a whole new look kind of thing. If you notice, they're quite a different look in that video. <laughs> well, I did. Yeah. The, the thing is, the interesting thing to me is I, I preferred the Canadian one in the sense that it seemed more reflective of the lyrics. You know, you got people around, you're happy, you're rising mm -hmm. up. It, it was more indi indicative of the lyrics, you know, yeah. that the American one is cool, but then it was sort of a concept thing too with the it paint. It definitely the was. Yeah. Definitely more of a concept thing. You know, they yeah. were, I guess, I, 
you know, really, I, I'm not sure what their vision was w- with that. But, you know, you just, hey, you're doing a video shoot today and this is yeah. what you're doing and this is what you're wearing and this is how you look. And, you know, we yeah. all kind of went along with it. We were we were just trying to make our way. Right. So, yeah. Well, the other thing I noticed about it was it was shorter too. It's just over three minutes. Like the Canadian version is over four minutes. Yeah. And the, so the American version was shorter. And I was wondering, was that because of the U.S. market? They wanted it tighter? Oh, probably. Yeah. Yeah. I would. And then there's a the theater. You did some live shots interspersed with the painting scene. So, yes. I mean, it was cool. It's a cool video. That yeah. I like it. But the other one I thought was more reflective of the, of the song. The actual song. Mm-hmm, right? For so, sure. Yeah. For sure. So then I guess when you get that kind of a song, I mean, it's kind of your way in, but it's also your trap in a sense, because then they want another one, right? I mean, most people never even get a song like that. Yeah. And then the record company's going, okay, we need another song like Rise Up. And you're like, "Um, okay. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, if you you get a chance to listen to that first uh, record that we did, there's some really fun, great songs on that record, uh, but none of them really uh, were chart you know, charted. None, none of them yeah. really made the charts. They were really fun and great. And we, of course, we toured with all of those songs and a few other cover tunes that were kind of popular, but nothing ever really uh, charted from that record other than Rise Up. Um, so, yeah. of course, we had to go and make another record. And, uh, you know, that that's always a challenge, right? I mean, you know, you're, yeah. you're like, oh, my gosh, now what do we do? Right. So, yeah, we we went back into the studio and, you know, that was a funny thing. We actually we had toured so much to pay back the 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 money that that they spent. Yeah. So they toured us like crazy. And then, okay, now you got to make another record. And really, we hadn't written anything. So we're in the studio and they're paying studio time and we're writing songs in the studio. We're finishing oh, some of these geez. ideas in the studio. It was crazy. It was crazy times. Yeah. yeah. Well, so. then you wrote At the Feet of the Moon. It's great. I mean, that was a yeah. genuine hit song and that, that did real well. Yes. Yeah, so that was with Michael Beinhorn and, uh, you know, he, he produced, uh, you know, he was in the group material and Chili yeah. Peppers. And, like he was, he was really quite well-known uh, producer and, um, you know, some of the ideas we brought in, he just didn't think they were great. And uh, so we just had to rewrite a bunch of stuff. And yeah, it was so at the feet of the moon, he didn't even like that song. Oh, he he really? just yeah, he said, this is just no, this is not good enough. And we just kind of stuck to our guns and said, no, we're re- this is our first release. And when you know it, it got more. Uh, he, I think it sold more or got more plays or something and then rise up. I mean, it was really popular. Great song. So, yeah. Great song. Everybody a, knew it. Yeah. yeah, it was a great tune. And then, yeah. of course, I got singing Uendo on that record, which was really great, too. So it was yeah. a bit of a solo uh, song for me, which was really, uh, I was thrilled to do it. So that yeah, was absolutely. Great. No, that's cool. And and then what was the John Oates connection? Like, how did you hook up with, because with, Holland Oates was, was huge still then. Oh, right? absolutely. And uh, I think uh, the story goes that uh, Holland Oates were taking a bit of a hiatus from touring okay. and uh, writing. And John Oates was looking for something to do. So mm. we, our record company had sent um, some tapes, like our, our demos. We were working on new tunes at the time for our, to do our third record and and we uh had done some demos and 
they sent it to um, uh, some of the record uh, and management companies in the States, some of the record labels. And uh, so uh, he had heard it. He had picked it up and he had heard it and he got really interested in, in um, ah, I think I could produce this. This group sounds like fun. So he came up and met us and uh, he said, yeah, I'm in. I want to do this. And so we mm. kind of went in from there. We just went. You know, and here's a kind of a side story, too, about that. You know, when I was a young girl, I uh, came out to B.C. one summer to pick fruit in an orchard out here in the Okanagan. And I had an aunt and uncle that lived out here. And I said, I'm going to go out to the Okanagan and I'm going to pick some fruit for the summer. And all the way, uh, the drive all the way out here. You know, we had one of those eight track tapes in our car. You remember yep. those? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. And one of my favorite tapes was Hall and Oates, right? Yeah. So I listened to that tape and I knew every lyric of every song and yeah. I just loved them so much. And I was, I always listened to them and loved them. And, and then here I was, how many years later? Yeah. singing in the studio and there was John Oates right there. Yeah. I mean, it was really Unreal. a dream come true. Yeah. That was really something. Well, and then you get the star factor that he brings to the table too. That kind of elevates your effort and what you're doing as well, right? Yeah, it was really exciting. You know, when he just, you know, his thing was you have to have a hook. You've got to have, you can't just meander around and, you know, like, because you like that melody or you like that lyric, it has to be a hook. Because, you know, look at how many hits they had. And so he taught us, a little bit about writing and and hooks and stuff too and so yeah. that was yeah it was really it was really a great experience with him he taught us a lot yeah mm-hmm. so then what what about the u.s success like did you guys ever i mean you toured down there a little bit i from what i understand but did you ever think well we're going to move to la or we're going to move to new york and just kind of take on the u.s market was that ever a discussion mm, well we did want to break into the states and you're right we did we went to new york we played a couple of dates in new york we went to buffalo played some dates there like northern part of the u.s we played uh in and around just south of toronto in and around the top of the states yeah. there right but uh, we always dreamed it'd be great to go and, and, and do some dates in Los Angeles and, and, you know, through the States, but it never did transpire. We just, we just didn't have the, the, the backing or we didn't have, um, maybe we didn't have the, the star power or the, the hits that they wanted to mm. hear, you know? So yeah. yeah, it just never did transpire for us. Well, you had, you had Rise Up, which was well-known in the U.S. from, you know, in, in the music circles, I guess. But then touring on the strength of one song is probably not going to be... Right. You're going to do a support slot with seven people. And it's a bit challenging, right, to, to well, have that many people. Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, you know, there was a time um, when Lorraine had gone down to the States and talked to a manager. And he said, you know... I can make you a star you're going to be a star. You just follow me. And, uh, but you have to ditch the band because, Mm. you know, we're not going to carry seven people, but we'll put a band together here for you. And, you know, we'll make you a star and, uh, you know, but you can't, you cannot bring that band. There's too many people in that band, you know? Mm. And so she just said, no, the band is, that's, that's us. That's who we are. And um, that's not going to happen. So, so yeah. there's that side of the story too, right? 
Well, yeah, and, and then, of course, in Canada, I guess in 1984, you won the, the Juno, right, for the most promising group of the year. Yeah, yeah, we won some Junos. We did pretty darn good. The group of the year, most yeah. promising group of the year. And, uh, yeah, uh, like, a, you know, j- yeah, we did we did pretty good. We actually did great. So say. you were well-known in Canada, but well then, Canada. you know, having, having a couple of hit songs and being a seven-piece band, it's kind of hard to make a living too, right? I mean, the, the, you're not yeah. making a million bucks doing that. You're <laughs> yeah, exactly. Basically, you know. <laughs> basically just touring, touring and touring and selling yeah. merch and touring, you know, yeah. to try and uh, pay all the bills, you know. Yeah. Uh, but we did quite well in Europe as, uh, you know, we went and, and toured in Europe a little bit too. So nice. England and Germany and, uh, they, uh, the, the parachute club after I left, they went back to Italy and did some touring there. So, oh, cool. you know, yeah. we were, we did well in, in Europe, but, uh, the States, not so much. Yeah. yeah well, it's a, it's a challenge, right? I mean, you have to kind of, well, that the reason I asked that is because, you know, Hall & Oates had done very well down there. So I wondered what their take on it was, or if they were able to help you try to do that, but they know how challenging it is too, right? Yeah. Yeah. And they had yeah. many years with many hits. And so, yes. you know, their track record was good. And I, I know John was, you know, trying to help us break into the States and, uh, you know, but yeah, nothing really ever transpired that way. Yeah. So. Well, and it's a long, lonely road too, right? I mean, you talk about touring, but I mean, some of the bands went down to the States and just toured and toured and toured for years and just really gave their life over to it. And and a lot of people just aren't willing to make that sacrifice, right? I mean, there's a big price to be paid for doing that. Oh, for sure. And, you know, some of us had families, you know, were married and, you know, it was hard enough touring across Canada and trying to keep a relationship going, uh, let alone, you know, be gone for you know, a year on the road in the States. So, you know, so yeah, it was. was. So then a bunch of your songs had some social commentary that came up a couple of times when I was doing my research for, for the interview. And, you know, you talked, I think the boys club, you talk about the war theme and that. So you were, you were a socially active band, I guess. Is that the best way to put it? Yeah. I suppose you could say it like that. I mean, uh, you know, Lorraine was more, uh, I have to say, like I, she was more involved in that, and and okay. you know, uh, of course, I was happy to support and all of that, but she was more the activist, you know, and um, yeah, it's like, but but definitely, we were we were making songs uh, for social changes, you know, people were really looking to. Uh, you know, there was, there was, they just wanted to change. There was lots of change happening in, in yeah. Toronto. And, uh, you know, that's what people were looking for. And we were singing about that. And, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was, yeah. it was an interesting time in Toronto in those days and in, in Canada as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always curious about that because some bands are just like, Hey, it's just the music. I just play the music and that's all like, like Dolly Parton. They tried to ask her about politics or social issues and stuff. She goes, Nope, Nope. I'm not involved in that at all i just i'm a singer yeah and other other bands or or entertainers try to use it for some social good you know it doesn't need to be preaching at people but just right trying to do something that's socially positive or yeah and you know. and that was our music right we we yeah. you know the the content was uh was like it was you know like that but it was also uplifting and you could dance to it and it had a in in lots of ways a positive message right so yeah, yeah not is, really preachy as you were saying 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah fair enough. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, and, and also with a song like Rise Up, you can apply that to pretty much anything that you want. Right? Yeah. Well, I thought a lot it was of, a positive. For sure. And a lot of people use that as their theme song, you know, for yeah. lots of things, right? You can rise up and do anything. So, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Cool. So then when I look back on the timeline here, like like you, you had record deals, you had management. Did you have like internal issues in the band or was it, was it, um, was there problems with any of that stuff? Well, you know, uh, we had, you know how that goes. Like the band, um, yeah. you know, was in the beginning, we were like really, really excited. We were all, you know, ready to do whatever it took. And, uh, you know, and then, you know, as things went on, you know, uh, the more, the more, um, how can I say, the more, popular you get and the more uh money that comes in it, you start you know things get convoluted right yeah so absolutely. uh in the beginning you know we were all sharing in the credits and you know everything was kind of split equally or if someone brought a whole tune in they would get all the credits but we were really pretty much uh, how can i say we were all equally part of it but you know as the time went on by the time the third record came in uh, there was a little bit more money and we were a little more popular and uh, things were getting a little more competitive. And, uh, you know, by then, the, by the third record, um, you know, 1986, I guess we recorded that, uh, you know, our management, I, I kind of, I have to say, you know, our management was kind of putting wedges between a few of us, you know, saying that, okay. oh, you can... You can make it out on your own. We, we can manage you and we can get your record deal on your own and, you know, and putting ideas in, in our heads. And, you know, so yeah. we kind of got, we just kind of got lost, you know, in all of that. And our heads got a yeah. little bit too big for our britches. And so, you know, things just got kind of out of hand sometimes. And so, yeah. Well, not that we were, nature. yeah, nature of it. Not that we were all fighting amongst each other. We really weren't fighting amongst each other. It just was, it just felt like it was falling apart. You know, we weren't mm. really as tight as we were in the beginning. It was just, yeah, yeah it was kind of sad. How but that then went. the interesting, yeah, and I, I, I can see how that would go. But the interesting thing looking back on it was the timelines are so short. I mean, you formed in what, 82? Yeah. Or 81. And then by 86, 87, you're gone. And it's all, it's like looking back at this point in life, it's like, holy guacamole. It was only a few years. It was only a few years. And we did so much in a few years. And I remember John Oates saying to me, you know, because I had a meeting and both Lori Conger and I, uh, we both uh, left in 87. And um, Mm -hmm. I remember John Oates phoning me up and saying, you know, you should really try and hang in. You shouldn't really quit the band. You should try and hang in there. And I said, you know, John, just so much water under the bridge and there's just, you know, starting to be animosity. And I just don't want that with my, my fellow players. I, I, I just really want to leave on a good note, you know? So I toured the last record and, um, did the tour for that. And then that was it. I, I, I left after that, unfortunately sad. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's, that's the pressures of the business. You're taking a ride and you're riding the wave and then the wave comes crashing down at some point. Right. I mean, either, either it's forced on you or you just go like, this isn't really what going to make my, my life happy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. 
Well, interesting. Well, thanks for sharing that because I was curious about that. You know, you think that that people want this sort of success and then they get it and then it's hard to keep all the glue it all together. It's hard to keep it all together, right? It is. It's really hard to keep it together. And, you know, I I always feel bad because uh, it was Billy and Lorraine that were more of the the front people, you know, they were basically the leaders and, you know, they were making most of this, the decisions for the band, Hmm. you know, and they had to deal with the record company. They had to deal with the management and, and, you know, even talking to Lorraine today, you know, she said, I I just wish that I had done things differently. And I think we still might've been able to do a few more records together, you know, because like, I just wasn't experienced enough to, to, you know, corral seven people and keep them happy. And, you know, a lot of it was truly on her shoulders and Billy's shoulders, you know? So it was, it was, yeah, it must've been difficult for them. Well, yeah, for sure. And, and I look back on, on things and, you know, you wish you'd done things differently or whatever with the experience that you have now, but then you've stayed in touch, right? You've done some shows with them and stuff. So there wasn't complete animosity, right? You still get along with them. And Oh yeah. yeah. Well, you know, many years went by because I, I had had, uh, a baby and um, I yeah. was doing a, a whole bunch of other things. Like I, I had a lot going on after I left the parachute club. I, you know, I was really, really busy. And so I kind of, they went on their merry way and did some more tours and recorded a few things. And uh, you know, uh, but I also had lots happening in my career. I was able to do a lot of different things, you know, so I, yeah. I, I wasn't just, uh, parachute club only, you know, so I, you know, I had a lot of other things happening. And so, um, we lost touch for quite a few years. And then, you know, I had my son and we moved to the States and, and I was down there and, uh, you know, but we were still friends and Lorraine had called me, uh, one time when I was living in the States and she had gone down to do, uh, record something with Mika Barnes, who was living in the States at the time. And, and she was doing um, Queen Street West. She was doing a film and she was doing some music and, and all of that for that. And she asked me to be part of that. So when I was living in California, I met her at one of the studios in L.A. And uh, I sang on one of the tracks. So, oh, you know, no. yeah, okay. we've always kept we, like there was some years there where we lost touch, but there really wasn't any animosity on my part for sure. And I don't think on their part either. And so, yeah. And then through the years, we've gotten back together and done lots of things together. So, Good. Well, that's a nice story. I'm happy to hear that because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, especially once you get older, you kind of look back and go, you know, it was what it was, but we're here now. So let's just make the best of everything. And, yeah. And that's yeah. a nice story. Yeah. And and then so so after Parachute Club, then did I read here that you turned down a tour with Katie Lang? Was that to, yeah, what was that, that was, about? Well, uh, you know, uh, Katie Lang's manager had called me and said, you know, Katie is... Uh, she's uh touring in the states because she had that hit with um uh what's his name you know uh oh gosh with Roy Orbison yes thank you crying yeah yeah she had the hit with him and so she was gonna go and do some tours in the states and I Mm. guess she had told her manager like I want Julie Massey to to sing with me I want to tour with me so I was like so thrilled to get that call and but you know I was doing so many things at that time and I was I was so fortunate. It was so lucrative. Uh, it was a lucrative time for me. I was doing many, many things. And I, I said, you know, uh, I, 
and I hadn't had my son yet at that point. Mm. I, I, you know, I was, but I was super busy. And I said, Hey, if you can offer me this much money, this is what I'm making a week here. Uh, if you can give me that, uh, a week, I can, I'll go out and I'll tour. And, and he came back to me, said, no, we can't give you that kind of money. And, uh, and, you know, unbeknownst to me, like I couldn't believe I was saying that because I thought who turns down a tour with yeah. Katie Lang, right? Not that I was, I wasn't turning it down. I was just wanting to make the same kind of money that I was making. Yeah, and fair so, enough. but unbeknownst to me, I was actually pregnant at the time. And mm -hmm. so I found out like a couple of weeks after, you know, when the manager said, sorry, we can't, we can't come up with that kind of cash for you. And then I found out I was pregnant and, you know, maybe if I had said yes and gone on the tour, I, I might not have had my baby, you know, so <laughs> it's kind of right. A, well, yeah. yeah, fair enough. And, and, and then of course, once you agree to a tour like that, you're pretty much, they kind of own you. Right? Oh you yeah. Do that, whatever that, they need. Oh yeah. That was going to be a big tour. And, you know, I mean, lots of times it is sort of one of the things I, I do slightly regret because it could have led into so many other things, but I never in one second regret, uh, that I had my son. I mean, I, that course, was yeah. joy of my life. So, yeah. 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 Well, and then you had the opportunity from what I read here to work with some other people like David Foster and Jose Feliciano and yeah. you know, Atlanta miles and Annie Lennox. How did that all come about? Were you just, well, you know, after I left, uh, parachute club and I had all of this going on, I toured with Dan Hill for a little bit because I, nice. um, Dan Hill's uh, musical director was John Sheard, and I had been working with John Sheard back before I joined Parachute Club in a group called the Cuban Fence Climbers. And so John and I had always kept in touch, and we had done, you know, lots of recording and t uh, radio shows and things together. But uh, so I had toured with him a bit, and, I, and then I was in the um, Waiting for a Miracle video with Bruce Coburn, his okay, Waiting for a Miracle cool. video. and. Started yep. recording some demos and things with Shirley Icard and Alana Miles, and I was on Rafi's record and Ken Whiteley's nice. records. I I was yep. really busy, yeah. And uh, I was also writing my own music with Steve Webster, who was our bass player, original bass player in Parachute Club, and another fellow from Winnipeg called Brent Barkman. And um, we were we were you know trying to secure a record deal with with the songs that we were writing which never transpired either. But uh, I did get to perform one of my songs called Love's Possessions with Manteca. Do you remember Manteca? It was I do, a, yeah, vaguely. Yeah. Big group out of Toronto. Uh, yeah. And and uh, we played a much music big ticket show. So I got to play on that. But um, oh, cool. yeah, uh, after that, I remember meeting David Foster. He was looking for... Um, he was looking for a, a singer to sing this song he was going to be recording. So, uh, you know, David Foster was so popular back then and, and still is. And uh, I remember this. He had, uh, he had chosen three of us girls in Toronto to come and audition for him. So there was, uh, there was uh, myself and um, Lisa Del Bello and this other gal named Sherry. I forget her last name. Anyway, we all went into this hotel no, this condo that had this great big grand piano. There was nothing else in the place but a grand yeah. piano. And, you know, I had to stand there and sing for David, learn the song on the spot and sing yeah. for him. 
like I, I'll tell you, Dan, it was like the most amazing and, and terrifying experience yeah, <laughs> at the same time. But I never did get the part. Uh, Sherry yeah. got the part. Even Lisa didn't get it, but Sherry got it. But yeah, cool. soon after that, he asked me to sing. Uh, he was doing a show at the Ontario Place Forum. And um, so I got to sing on that show with him. And that was really fun. And then uh, recently here in the Valley, he was doing a show at, at Mission Hill winery and uh i got to sing with him on that show too which was really fun oh, that was that just a, i think it was in 2008 just a few years back so. oh very cool yeah but well, i yeah. was lucky i i got to work with a lot of great people in toronto so many things were happening then so uh yeah, yeah. i got to do that well, i was wondering about that with the timelines because when when parachute club was when you were done with that then you were still in toronto at that time so you did a bunch of the other stuff and then you moved to la right didn't you move to the states i did uh my son was born in uh, 1990. And in 1991, okay. we had the opportunity to, my husband and I had to go to the States. Uh, he always wanted to uh, be involved in a restaurant. He always really wanted his own restaurant. And we had the opportunity okay. to invest in a restaurant. And that's, so we packed everything up and we moved to California. It wasn't because of my music. It was because you know, he wanted to uh, be involved in, with the restaurant. So we yeah. bought into this restaurant, which when we got there, uh, it really wasn't happening. So okay. we, uh, my husband was a hairdresser initially as well. And uh, we decided to open up uh, uh, beauty salons since we were okay. down there and we had our, yeah. we ended up um, getting our papers, you know, our American paper, our, like they yeah. were working visas. They weren't, yeah. um, they were just like our AE1 visas. So anyway, we decided, well, let's just stay here and we'll open up beauty salons. And we had the Lucas salon and then we ended up with four other salons. But nice. while we were down there, um, we had been living in La Jolla. Then we were in Carlsbad for a couple of years and we moved to this inland to this town called Temecula, California, which was a horse country and wine country. It was a beautiful area. And th when we lived there... Um, we were there for a couple of years. My son was about four or five years old then, and I met uh, some musicians, and I started, I started singing again. So uh, that okay. was really yeah. nice. Yeah, and and yeah. through that, I you know was doing more and more, and I was doing some recording, and I was doing some TV shows and things like that down there. Nice. So yeah, okay. I kind of carried on after my son was a little bit older. Yeah, I was curious about that because I was I assumed that you would want to stay and gravitate towards back towards music and some kind of um, showbiz thing, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I had that opportunity and uh, started working with John Laskin. He was a local musician there and he had a lot going on. He had a lot of corporate gigs and lots of, uh, you know, dates around the wineries and things like that in yeah, Southern cool. California. And so um, I hopped on into his band and then... From there, I started my own group called the Blues Testament, and uh, we did a lot of different things as well with that group. So oh, that was fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then how did you end up back in Canada? Oh, well, um, that's an, another story. After 9-11 happened, hmm. uh, they were they, uh, our accountants that we had for when we had our beauty salons, they had, they had kind of, they phoned us up one day and said, you know, Hey, I don't think they're going to re start. Re I don't think they're going to be renewing visas. Once your visa runs out, oh. they may not renew it because 
you know, there was so much going on there after 9-11. Everybody was terrified. Everybody was getting out of the country. Yeah. They were moving back to Canada, you know, moving wherever they were from. And so, uh, and my husband kept saying, I want to go back to Canada. And I said, are you crazy? We, I'm not going to go back to Canada. I'm living in California. <laughs> what do you want to yeah. go back to Canada <laughs> for? Right? And we're living the dream here. And, and yeah. so, but when 9-11 happened, the, uh, we we heard this news. And uh, so we, we decided to put our case to a, a congressperson that our our accountants knew and and they reviewed our case and he's and the guy said, you know, really, you should you've got six years on your working visas. He said, if I was you, my advice is to sell everything, go back to Canada, because probably by the time the visas run out, they're not going to renew it on you. And then you're going to be stuck oh. with your businesses. So which had been happening to we'd we'd heard that it had been happening. People, you know, their visa ran out and they had these businesses and they had to just shut everything down and, and move. Right. So. So yeah. that's what we did. We we uh, got ourselves organized and moved back to Canada in 2003. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay, I got you. Okay, well, that kind of makes sense. And then, so you picked Kelowna to move to? Yeah, well, because I had known of the valley and how beautiful it was, uh, I told my husband, you know, I said, I am not moving to back to Toronto, too big of a city. <laughs> I'm not going back to Winnipeg. It's too cold. Yeah. But I would, if we have to move back, I would go to the valley, and, uh, and yeah. so he came up and he saw how gorgeous it was, and uh, oh yeah, and and you know he saw that there was a restaurant for sale up here. So what did he do? He bought a restaurant. So there that's what we did when we moved back. We we uh, we opened a fine dining Italian restaurant here. Well, very nice. Yeah. Well, interesting. And then, and then, of course, you would have immersed yourself in the music business, I guess, in the in the local scene again, but. Mm -hmm. um, but before that, I, I guess you lost your husband in 2010. Is that right? So it was only yeah. a few years. Yeah. So, you know, when we moved here in 2003, the city was pretty quiet. There wasn't a lot of live music at all at that time. There might have been prior to us being here, but there sure wasn't anything going on uh, around there. It was really, really quiet, sleepy little town. And, uh, my husband and I said, yeah, well, hell, like we've got this restaurant. Why don't we have live music here every Friday night? Right. So nice. I, I uh, tried to, like, I didn't know anybody here. I, I hadn't, you know, didn't meet, I didn't know. I just like, mm. who am I going to call? So I did meet uh, some musicians. I made a couple of calls and uh, we started live music every Friday night in the restaurant. Okay. Cool. And before we knew it, we had lineups and, Everything was, you know, it was just, it was so busy. And it, I think it really kind of spurred uh, other people into doing it because all of a sudden other restaurants were having uh, live music. So it really okay. kind of just stirred the pot a little bit. And uh, yep. so, yeah. And then from there, you know, I was hiring different musicians to play in the restaurant and I was, I'd be singing every Friday night. And, and so I was meeting a lot of really great musicians and, and then, um, my husband was involved with this fellow who was starting this. Um, it's a it was a nonprofit organization called Bicycles for Humanity, mm. and it was a nonprofit organization to collect. Uh, they were collecting old bicycles and they were uh, shipping them to third world countries who didn't have a way to go and get medicine or water or whatever. And so uh, we we 
do we did this big fundraiser at the restaurant and uh the the fellow who was the the main organizer said you should write a song for our website and for our cause and so i wrote humanity rocks and uh we uh you know through that writing that song and recording it i met so many more musicians because uh, i just said you know i want all the musicians on this come and sing come and play whoever you are and so i i just really met a lot of other people that way and and I just really connected to the music community here that way. So yeah. it was really oh, very great. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, so you lost your husband and then you, you do some uh, fundraising for, I guess it was prostate cancer that he, uh, yeah, passed he later. passed. He had a six years battle with prostate cancer. Okay. And, um, prior to his passing, we, we were doing, uh, fundraisers for uh, prostate cancer. And then when okay. he passed, yeah. I kind of carried, carried it on in his honor. And so, you know, when he was alive, we, we, at the restaurant, we would constantly meet people coming in from Winnipeg. Like there was so, I guess they must've heard we were from Winnipeg originally. And so we'd meet all these people. And and my husband, Augustino said, we should do a Winnipeg night. You know, we should have like a big Winnipeg night and just have fun with, you know, we know so many people from Winnipeg here. Yeah. So that was my idea of like, I'm going to do Winnipeg social because here nobody knew about socials. And I don't know if you know about socials, yeah. but in Manitoba, they do socials to raise money for, you know, the church or the community or somebody's wedding or whatever. And it's just a big party and you have, you know, all your social food with your pierogies and your, cold cuts in your cheeses and you know all of that stuff and you you know lots of rye and coke and beer and you have a live band and yeah you're always lots of uh, like a live auction or whatever or silent auction so i decided that's what i was going to do i was going to in honor of him i was going to raise some money for prostate cancer and carry on and so I've produced six of those shows and we've basically raised over $40,000 altogether. Nice. Well, that's really good. So, and it goes, yeah, and it goes right back here to our community. There is a group of, of, uh, people that get together to support, uh, prostate cancer, um, survivors and, um, people who have just, uh, you know, been diagnosed and they, they need support. So, yeah. uh, it goes right back here to our community. So I'm really proud of that. No, that's good. I, I, and I did see the interview you did with John Delaney as well. Oh, nice. About, I did watch that. Yeah. So, cause I was familiar oh, with nice. him. He played at the river rock quite a bit in Vancouver and, and I'd seen the indestructibles. And then of course my band, we played there all the time. That was one of our oh, most, cool. most common gigs. We played the river rock casino. So I did see that. So I appreciate it. Exactly. Yeah. And so his, his, um, John Delaney, uh, you know, of course he does the fet- are my, he does my, uh, Winnipeg socials every yeah. year because yeah. he's from Winnipeg. So, yeah. but his piano player, Steve Susie ended up, uh, I ended up working with him here for many years and, and, and he became my partner. So we, we had a relationship and he was, you know, my partner and we, we wrote a lot of music together and, yeah, so he since passed as well. He just well, passed. Yeah, you know, I was I was gonna bring that up because of course I knew Steve quite well. And Oh uh, you did. I had I had known him for, for many years. He actually played on some of my recordings in the mid nineties. That's why he played he came in the studio. Now Steve for the people who don't know, Steve Susie's a was a very well known keyboard player and exceptionally good. And uh, yes. I saw him playing at the town pump one time and my buddy said, You gotta come and check this guy out and I'm like and I went over and watched him play and I was just 
jaw dropped. So I said, I'm going to record some music and I'm going to get him to come in. So in, in the mid nineties, I hired Steve. He came into the studio and he played that song Laurel. And when Steve passed away, Steve and I were two weeks apart in age. He was two weeks older than I am. Oh, wow. And, uh, and so I, and, and I know of course, Sean and Serge, I know his brothers. Yeah. Um, nice. but anyway, so he came in and, and then when I heard that he passed away, I felt so bad for you. And I, I got those old tapes out and I redid them and Steve came in and he did the piano intro to it. And it was so good. We were all just jaw dropped in the studio going, this guy is just unbelievable. Oh yeah. The feel he was of it. really a talent, really a, a, an amazing talent. So I did the dedication to him at the beginning of the video and stuff. And so I was going to ask you about that because you, you ended up playing lots of, was it La Monet? Yeah, we had was a duo the, called La Monet yes. and uh, yeah. <clears throat> we had that going for quite some time and that was pretty much a duo most of the time but we yeah. you know we sometimes would add other players when when there was extra money that we could get we would definitely uh add extra players and uh yeah we yeah. did some really great gigs together and and yeah he was just really something else and he's you know start was trying to produce a lot of people here in town uh jimmy yeah. lagoo he did some great work with him jimmy's, and jimmy's great i know jimmy too oh wow yeah, yeah. Great That's, guitar player. Yeah, he sure is. Sure yeah. is. Well, I know, and I know Mike Shell. Of course, you work with Mike Shell now. Yes, uh, yes. And now this past year, I've been working with Mike, and uh, I've toured with Mike a little bit, and been in. You know, we had a ten-piece group called Uptown Ten for a while, and then then we've got a nine-piece group now called Soul Effects, and and Mike yeah. has been awesome. He's you know given me lots of work and uh, really been supportive through this past year, you know, yeah, good. while I've been going through my grieving stage. Yeah. Yeah. I, my heart goes out to you and I, I, it was sudden too, right? He just, he Thank just, you. uh, yeah. He, he yeah. Just, it was very sudden, just boom, gone, you know? Yeah. So, so, yeah, well, I know you did sad. also with, uh, with Mike, you, you did the legend shows cause you guys went out and toured with the legends of rock and then you did the rock of ages show as well too. Well, I actually, um, Steve would have done the legend, but I didn't do that. Uh, but okay. I did rock of ages and there was, it was, uh, mounted actually twice here. So the first time, uh, Steve and I did the show together. The second time, um, I did it on my own. Steve did not do it at that time. He was out okay. on tour and whatnot. So, yeah. Um, he was out on tour with Mike, <laughs> so I got to do it the second time, but yeah, that was really, really fun. But, um, yeah, I actually have gone out and done some touring with Mike in his Elvis tribute show. Yes, they do. They do. And he's also got the contract, I think for West side days in Kelowna and then the Elvis festival as well. Right. That's right. Yeah. So I'll yeah. be helping him with the uh, West side days. As a matter of fact, we're, I'll be, I guess they're doing the battle of the bands this year. So there's 10 yeah. bands involved and he's asked me to, to help him be one of the judges. So that's going to be oh, lots cool. of fun. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think the Elvis Festival is the same weekend as the Peach City Beach Cruise in Penticton, which oh. we will be playing at that. So oh, we'll great. With, well, yeah. I hope I connect with you. That would be great yeah. to see. If you. they yeah. have it. They've if they have it. See, now this is the whole thing. We've got all of these things planned for this summer, but who knows, you know, with this pandemic, what's going to actually happen. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I've, I've been, I mean, I've been a full-time musician for many decades, so I've kind of survived through all this with the various different things, but yeah, it's been a bit of a challenge. There's no doubt about that. It's been up and down and, and sideways with this COVID thing, but hopefully, fingers crossed, we're going to be out of it pretty soon. Yeah, so. fingers crossed is right. Yeah, good. 
Yeah. Good. Well, no, I appreciate that. You you really shared a lot of stuff with me. This is super cool. You've had a, a really neat experience. It's a very circuitous route that we take in life. Eh? You just, and you've had some, some tragedies and you've had some difficulties, but you've obviously come through it okay. And you can smile at the end of it and kind of carry on. Yeah. I've, I've just have, I have <clears throat> a really incredible support system here yeah. with uh, my family and, uh, you know, just the musicians and, and everyone I've met here, oh, they're just amazing. And we're really quite a tight little family. And I know it's a small community, but we're, you know, we're small, but we're mighty. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. And you're, you're right in the middle of it. So I, I appreciate that. And then, yeah. and then Mike, Mike's got the studio going too now, Mike Shell, right? And you guys are producing LMS records and you're producing and developing some acts and you're going to be involved in that as well. Yes. We're, we've got some, some really great young upcoming artists and, uh, and, and we've been putting some of them in the studio and, uh, and some of them are recording on their own, but we're helping them, you know, further their music on Spotify. And, 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 uh, one of the gals, she's out of Vancouver, Amanda Dean. I don't know if you've met her, yeah, but I, I'm familiar with her. Yeah. Yeah. So she's now on national radio. She's doing really good. good. Yeah, yeah. She's excellent. got a great voice and, you know, so yeah. And, uh, who knows, who knows what's going to happen. I mean, we've got, you know, lots, lots going with all these young artists. I get to sing on some of their tracks and nice. that's been fun to be back in the studio. And, uh, yeah. Wow really in, enjoying that so well and mike's got lots of energy he's kind of like what we were 30 years ago kind of thing right where he's just really jacked about doing everything <laughs> which is what you need you need that energy right you sure do well he's a little bit younger than me so he's got way more energy <laughs> <There you> go. <laughs> <laughs> exactly so well, good yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing this uh, this stuff with us it really means a lot to me that you took the time to do it so i've really appreciated it a lot well, Dan, thank yeah. you for even thinking of me and, and being well, interested. And, you know, it's kind of exhausting talking about yourself for an <laughs> hour. But, I mean, it, it does bring up some really great memories, you know. Absolutely. I mean, you did bring up that memory of Aunt singing with Annie Lennox and Sarah McLaughlin. And, yeah. you know, at the Roy Thompson Halls, like, uh, that was really a highlight in my life. And, uh, Absolutely. That, you know, things like that. I've just been so fortunate along my my journey and and i'm just so grateful for every minute yeah absolutely no so, that, that's great so so thank you for for letting me tell my stories no well, i'm glad you did many thanks to julie massey for being part of the liner notes podcast and sharing some insights from her incredible experiences in the music business and we hope you enjoyed the podcast and invite you to subscribe to it and share it on social media so others can enjoy it as well and you can also become a member if you'd like notifications or other inside information and perks we'd love to have you on board and we invite you to listen to dusty discs radio tuesdays and thursdays for music from the canadian artists you're hearing on this show so until next time i'm dan harris